Good morning. It's good to be together. This morning we're beginning our Advent series. Today's the first of the four Sundays of Advent. So we're starting a new series today, and we titled it, we made it very simple this year in our title. We titled it Jesus. Nice and simple, straight to the point. If you go to our website, there's a, there's a tab that says the gospel, and if you click on that tab, it'll take you to a page where you are brought to four descriptive titles of Jesus that you can read through, and it walks you through the gospel. And these four descriptive titles of Jesus are that he is our eternal God, he is the risen Savior, human substitute, he's our returning King. And so this Advent season, each Sunday, we're going to use to address each of those descriptive identities of Jesus to help us understand who Jesus is, why he has come, why we celebrate Christmas, why Christmas is so meaningful to us. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He's not just, he's not just a man, but he is the eternal God, one worthy of all of our worship, worthy of all of our belief. Okay? If you've been here the last few months, you know that we've been in a series in 1 John that has been leading us through. And you know that 1 John was written so that we might have a chance of our salvation, right? That we might know that we believe that our faith in Jesus is real, the same author who wrote 1 John is also the, the author who wrote the Gospel of John, which is the book I'm going to be preaching from today. And his, the, the point of his book, the Gospel of John, is very similar. While 1 John was written so that we might know that we believe, first, or the Gospel of John was written so that we might believe in Christ, and that by believing, we might have life. Okay, that's, that's, that's what John is seeking to do. And as we, as we look at the first five verses today, John wastes no time in telling us who the object of our belief is, that he is the word, the word of God. The tension or the conflict in John, or the invitation in John, is whether or not we are going to believe or reject Jesus as the son of God. Are we going to believe in him and be saved, believe, on, believe in him and have life? Or are we going to reject him? So that's the invitation today. Are we going to believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the one who offers us life? So if you have, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to John chapter 1. Abby actually already read the first 18 verses. I, I gave her the long reading. I'm just going to read the first five verses today as, as we begin. If you don't have your Bibles, the words are going to be on the screen. You can read along there. So in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time where we can come and sit under your word. We thank you for it. We thank you, God, that you are speaking to us today through these words. And God, I pray that you would help us now, God, to focus on you. I pray that you would make our hearts receptive to your word. God, I pray that you would get me out of the way. God, that you would make your presence known this morning, that you would make your truth be known and believed in. 
this morning. Would you come and do great things this morning? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So each of us here, there are different titles that could be used for us, many descriptive titles. For myself, I might be referred to as Angela's husband. I might be referred to as Nora's dad now. I might be referred to as Lance and Karen's son or Lauren and Colin's brother. I might be referred to as a musician. I don't know. Uh, my, the students in my youth ministry, despite n- numerous attempts to have them feel comfortable just calling me Brian, they still refer to me as Pastor Brian. It's way too formal for me. It feels weird. But all of, these des- all of these descriptions tell you a little bit about who I am. When we look at Jesus, there are many titles that are used for Jesus. As we look in the gospel, some of those titles like, G- like teacher, right? His disciples call him teacher. They call him Christ. Jesus himself calls himself the son of man. That, w- that seems to be his favorite title for himself, the son of man. As we look at the rest of scripture, we see other names too, right? Like Messiah, Redeemer, Savior, King. And a lot of these titles we can, we can understand, even if we're not a Christian, we understand what those titles mean. Take a title like Savior, for instance. As Christians, we know that we only have one true Savior, and that's Jesus. But sometimes we kind of use a term like Savior to refer to someone like Aaron Rodgers, who time and time again is the Savior of a terrible Green Bay Packers team, right? Year after year, not the Savior this year, unfortunately for me, but, you know, we might refer to him as the Savior. That's, that's lowercase Savior there. So we can kind of understand what some of these titles mean. We understand titles like King, if Jesus is our King, our ultimate King, because there are other kings, lowercase kings, here, on, here in the world. Right? We understand what those titles mean. But here in John 1, when John uses the title, the Word, that, that's, at first, we might scratch our heads, like, why, why was he called the Word? We don't go around calling somebody the word, like our best friend, man, you are the word. Seems a little, seems a little weird for us. But Jewish readers at this time, when they heard Jesus being referred to as the word, they would have known right away what that meant. In the Old Testament, when God spoke to his people, he spoke through the prophets. Whenever the prophets spoke on behalf of God, it was referred to as the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was the perfect revelation of God. When God wanted to speak to his people and reveal himself to them, or how he desired them to live, it was known as the word of the Lord. And now that John has called Jesus the word, now what he's saying is Jesus has come and he is the perfect revelation of God. He is the word of God. In Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2, the author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. (coughs) He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he goes on to say, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This This is who the word is. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the most perfect and full revelation of who God is. If we want to know who God is, we must know his word, right? We must receive his word. If we want to know God, we must receive Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of God, who is God himself, right? Which is what John goes on to tell us, that he is God. It took the the disciples of Jesus like John, it took them 
three years to come to understand who Jesus is, who the true identity of Jesus is. And yet here in his book, John wastes no time telling us who this person is that he's writing about, who the main character of John is. He is the word. He is God. He is the creator of all things. So that's what we're going to talk about today. If there's one point that you can take away, it's a really simple point and it's a really big point today. But it is this. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal God, he is the source of life and meaning. And, we, and Greek readers at this time, they would have understood that word, logo, word, word, and perhaps in a different way than some of the Hebrew readers, because that the word was the English translation of the Greek word logos. We know that John was written in the Greek language. And that Greek word logos was one that carried some baggage in the first century Roman Empire. The, the term logos was associated with Greek philosophy. The Greek philosophers, um, while there are many different schools of thought um, of Greek philosophy, the, the Logos was this impersonal force or, be, or being that gave life and meaning to the universe. So whenever Greek philosophers referred to the Logos, they were referring to whatever that was, the source of ultimate life and meaning in the universe. And it was this impersonal force. What John is telling us now is that Jesus is the Logos. Right? He's speaking in language that um, those who understand Greek philosophy can understand, saying, no, Jesus this, he is the ultimate source of meaning and life in this world. He is the ultimate source of life. And because, and this is rooted in the fact that he is the eternal God, is the eternal God, the word, the logos. He is the ultimate source of meaning and life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And so let's begin looking at the word. Um, the very first, in the very first two verses, we see how Christ is God himself. In verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We see both an introduction to who this word is and we see this distinction here because it says that the word is both with God and the word was God. That's a little, you know, um, can be a little tricky if we don't take the entirety of scripture into account. As we, as we read through scripture, we see that the Trinity is revealed to us, right? That we the object of our faith, our God, is not just one single person, but God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here John is introducing us to the second person of the trinity. Without the doctrine of the trinity, this, this, these words here don't really make sense to us. We don't have time to really delve in to take on the whole doctrine of the trinity this morning, but we see this here. When John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So we see that distinction, but also the word was God. One thing that is so beautiful about who our God is that is so unique and something that like, to the, I don't think man could have come up with this ourselves. But as we worship one God, as, God, as scripture reveals one God to us, God himself exists as this per perfect community within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a very relational being. And we see this in scripture. God is relational. He desires relationships and he has perfect relationships with himself. Father with the son, son with the Holy Spirit. And we see this throughout John. Jesus himself, he prays later on in the book of John. He says, Father, I pray that my disciples would be one as you and I are one. Right? 
God has such unity with himself, the persons of the Trinity, that he desires for us to have with him, and he invites us into that. God is a relational God, and we see that here. As John introduces to us the second person of the Trinity and the unity that God has within himself. John also says that he was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, backing up a little bit, as we begin reading this book, we, we immediately hear the echo of Genesis 1.1. In Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here in John, in the beginning was the word. We see that the word was the one through whom everything was created. Um, recently, there was a ministry called Ligonier, Ligonier Ministries, which is the ministry of a, um, an author, pastor, theologian named R.C. Sproul. And this ministry, they, they took a survey of evangelicals because they wanted to know the state of evangelicals' understanding of core Christian doctrines. Okay, I hope I didn't throw out too many big words. Just... But in this survey, they had a list of statements that you were supposed, that as you took this survey, you were, you were either to um, affirm that statement, yes, that is a Christian statement, or you were to reject it, no, that is not a Christian statement. One of the statements that was made was that Jesus Christ is the first created being. Now, without answering that out loud, after, first, after reading John, what would you think the answer to that is? How would, would you either affirm or reject that statement? Unfortunately, 78% of those who claim to be evangelicals said, yes, Jesus Christ is the first created being, which is pretty troubling. It means we, we, kind of ha- we kind of lack an understanding of who Jesus is. He's not a created being. He is the one through whom all things were created. He's the one through whom all things move and have their being, and he is the one for whom all things were created. Jesus Christ has always been. He is the word. We need, we need to understand that. If we want to look to Christ for life, we must understand that it's because he is the only life giver, because he is the creator of all things. If we, if we think that Jesus Christ, too, that was a created being, then statements like these that we see in John and in Colossians and in Hebrews 1 they don't make sense. They contradict themselves. If Jesus was the first created being, but yet all things were created through him, then wouldn't he fall under all things? Wouldn't he create himself? God is not a created being. Nobody can create themselves. But, but, he, but he can create because he always was. Jesus Christ has always been. And it is in these later times, as Hebrews says, that the word has now taken on flesh to dwell among us, and bring us life. We look to Christ to bring us life. And as the creator, he created all things. And you might be thinking to yourself today, well, you know, I'm living today. I've got life. Why do I need, why do you need to continue to look to life, look to Christ for life? It was because of our sinfulness that we experience spiritual death. This was a condition that we were born into. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, God told them that if you, the day that you sin against me, by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely perish. And God was merciful to them because he did not strike them dead physically then, but they did experience spiritual death in that moment. We think of physical death, that one day, unless the Lord comes back sooner, we pray for that. But if the Lord does not come before our time, all of us will experience 
physical death. That's the reality that we experience because of a result of our sin. But as physical death is the separation, the unnatural separation between the body and the soul, spiritual death is the separation between us and God. That's what spiritual death is, this separation between us and God. As I said earlier, God is a relational God who desires relationships with us. He desires us to experience life and that life exists in relationship to God. And God, God came to bring us light. Later on in John, it's, we read this earlier, in him, in the word was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. We live in a world that, it, that is filled with darkness, but we know that God is at work today, shining his light. We know that Christ is the light. And we know that Christ has not been overcome by it. I believe that these words are foreshadowing the resurrection. We, <clears throat> at the beginning of John, he is foreshadowing what Christ came to do. Right? How did Christ overcome the darkness? Christ came, he took on flesh to live the perfect life that we could not. He died on the cross in our place. He bore our darkness. He bore our sin and our shame. And he suffered the penalty that we deserved for that. And then he rose again. Because he was life, he could not be overcome by darkness. He has come to bring us life. And if we believe in him, believe on Christ is what John desires for us, right? That's the whole purpose of John, that we might believe on Christ for salvation. We might believe on him for life. If we believe in, if we believe in him, what he has come to do, and we trust in what he has done for us, the finished work of Christ, we can experience that life. We can experience spiritual life again. And that's what the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 was talking about. First of all, he says that us who are in Christ now, we were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but now we have been made alive in Christ, right? And that's not a work that we have done. We can't do that ourselves. We can't fix our problem. We can't fix our broken state, but we must look to Christ. If we want to experience life and life eternal, we must look to Christ. This is why Christ came was to bring us life life eternal. And that includes physical life as well. Because when Christ rose again, he rose again in a physical body. And we have that hope that one day too, we will live forever in the presence of Christ, body and soul forever in the resurrected state. I love the last line of that song we just sang, what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power, he's been resurrected as we will be when he comes back. We have that hope of eternal life with Christ, having a perfect relationship with God again and being lit, lit forever, the fullness of life. And so if we, want to, <clears throat> if we want to experience that life in this life, we must look, we must look to Christ. We must look to Christ for life. And we must look to God too to sustain us. Many of us, when we believe that the entry point into Christ, which this is true, the entry point into becoming a Christian is repentance and belief, right? When we come to faith, it's marked by this moment where we turn from our sin and we turn to trust in Jesus. And we think that, okay, that's how we received the gospel then, but now as I continue to live my life, I must look to other means to sustain me, whether that's my, my good effort, right? My, my good works, whatever that may be, fill in the blank. 
We look to other things at times to sustain our relationship with God, to sustain our lives. We look to the wrong source of nourishment. When I was in college, um, I looked to the wrong things to sustain me physically. When I had a horrible, um, you could say, um, a uh, um, horrible understanding of what would bring me nourishment physically, my, my, um, my diet consisted of every morning I would wake up, have a couple cups of coffee. For lunch, let's make some ramen noodles. Let's drink a Dr. Pepper. Let's Let's drench those ramen noodles in sriracha sauce. Okay, three o'clock rolls around. I've worked hard in school. I'm gonna treat myself to another Dr. Pepper and some Little Debbie cakes. You know, the little white ones with the chocolate chips on them. Those were my favorite. Dinner, dinner rolls around. All right, let's make some more ramen noodles. Let's drench those bad boys in some more sriracha sauce. Maybe if I'm feeling a little help, healthy, let's cook some of those um, carrots and corn and the pea, that little mix, you know, that you can like fry up in a pan, put that in the ramen noodles, you know, to give the illusion that this is a healthy meal. It's not. Drink that, eat that with another Dr. Pepper later on after I've watched like five hours of The Office. I'm going to drink some more Dr. Pepper and eat some more Little Debbie cakes. All right. Now that was, that was, you know, that was fun at the time, but I found out pretty quickly that that was not going to provide the nourishment that I needed. I began feeling weak a lot, tired a lot. I also ex- ex- had a profound experience of heartburn and indigestion like I had never before experienced, okay? I was looking for nourishment in the wrong places. And as Christians, oftentimes we do that with our spiritual lives with God. We look for, we look for spiritual nourishment in the wrong places, whether that is our own, um, our own um, hard work or achieving our own status among other Christians, whatever that could be, we look for other things to nourish our walk with God rather than looking to the gospel, rather than looking to Christ and what he has done for us. Jesus Christ, later on in John 15, he makes this statement that I am the vine and you are the branches. That You can bear no fruit apart from me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's true of us as Christians. If we want to experience the life that Christ has given us, and I want to be clear, when when Jesus says abide in me, he's not saying that because you can lose your life. Once you've been made alive in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. And that's also another sermon for another day, but you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your life. So when, when Jesus is saying to abide in me, and when I'm saying that we must look to Christ to nourish us, I'm not saying that with the lack with a lack of nourishment, we're not going to be saved anymore. But if we want to experience the life that Christ has given us, we must continue to look at the gospel. We must continue to walk in this constant state of repentance and belief because that's, that, that is our response to the gospel. How Jesus Christ has given us life by turning from our sin, denouncing our own self-sufficiency at times, turning from our own good works and trusting in the finished work of Christ and living grateful lives for what Christ has done for us. There are, there are some active ways that we can pursue Christ. Call the, some of us call these the means of grace, the, ways that we, the way that we experience God's grace and experience God's life. We can begin by spending more time in God's word pursuing Christ. We can begin by spending more time in prayer, spending more time not neglecting the body of Christ. These are all means that God has given us to experience Christian life, right? None of these things earn us a right standing with God. None of these things earn us 
um, um, good standing before God or life, but these are means that God has given us to experience the life that God, he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if we want to look to God for sustenance in this life, we don't need to be neglecting these things. If, if we are looking to Christ to sustain us and our lives are marked by these practices and an ongoing um, posture of repentance and belief in Jesus, that is going to sustain us through seasons of hardships and seasons of blessing. In seasons of hardships, it can be oftentimes, even if we haven't been sustained by God, those, God can use those moments to drive us to our knees in prayer. But if we, if we are actively seeking God to sustain us as we are walking through those seasons of great darkness, because we can, God does not promise us health and wealth in this life, but he does promise spiritual life to us who are in Christ. He promises us his presence in our lives. He, he promises us that if we are in him, that all things are working, that he's going to work all things together for our good and our glory. And we, I want Romans 8, 28 is one of my favorite verses. And sometimes I, I can say it so much that it can almost lose its meaning. It, it can become a cliche, but it's still so true that we can have this hope that even all the darkness that we experience in this life, sometimes it's brought on by us because we are sinful people that still have some darkness in us because we still dwell in our flesh, right? God can use even our past mistakes. He can use them for our good and his glory. God can redeem our past and God can use all the darkness that we walk through now, whether that's um, sickness or the loss of a job, whatever that is, God can use that all for his good and his glory. And we, so when we, when we walk through those seasons of hardship, we can, we can find sustenance in those moments because we are abiding in Christ. We are looking to Christ to sustain us and we can cling to those promises that God gives us in his word. We can find life knowing that our God who loves us and has this relationship with us, he is not going to forsake us, but he is walking with us through this. And he has proved this in how he has come and taken on flesh and he has experienced everything that we have experienced in this life other than sin, right? He has experienced suffering and great loss. He's even experienced death. He knows what it's like. He will never forsake us. When we, now, when we walk through seasons of blessing, sometimes it can be even more tempting to, to not seek Christ to sustain us because we have all of our needs met. And so we can kind of become, um, we can begin to neglect the idea that we need Christ to sustain us because we're looking towards other things in our lives to sustain us, whether that is, whether that is our health the amount of blessings that we have, our material possessions, our achievements. We're looking to those things, for those things to find life in, putting our trust in those things. Psalms 143, um, the psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes, right? Because in them there is no salvation, but we have to look to Christ. And if we are seeking Christ to sustain us, and if our lives are, um, are marked with those practices, like spending time in God's word and prayer in his community. God can use those things to, to sustain us even in seasons of blessing. One way that we know that we're probably not looking to Christ to sustain us even when we are experiencing times of great blessing is whether or not we are going to God in prayer, whether or not we are living with an attitude of gratefulness. 
think in America, we can all agree that we have been blessed beyond belief and yet so much, so much of the time we can still dwell on what we don't have, especially as Christmas time is rolling around. And so the marketing is on full blast online or on, on TV through all these commercials, right? We can focus on what we don't have, but we must look to Christ. We must look to Christ in life knowing that he's the only one who can give it to us. As we continue to look at that, how Christ is the word, the ultimate source of life, it's also the ultimate source of meaning. Christ is the meaning of life. That, that, that was the, the second meaning of that word logos that Greek philosophers would have understood. Right? So when Jesus says that he is the, when John says that Jesus is the logos, he is the ultimate meaning of life. He's the only one that can bring us ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Well, what do you think our culture's logos is, right? If we look around us to see how those around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, maybe our classmates, we're students here, what do you think their logos would be, is? Meaning, what do you think, why do they live? What do they think the meaning of life is? Perhaps it is happiness, right? The whole meaning in life is so that I can be as happy as I can be. I want to pursue every desires inside that I have, right? Maybe self-expression, the ability to express myself fully and freely, that is what the logos in life is. Maybe it's just seeking achievements. I want, to, I want to leave behind a good reputation for myself, a good legacy. That is the purpose of life. As we enter into this Christmas season, like I already said we can be tempted to think that the meaning of life is found in how many material possessions that we have. Material possessions, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves. When we look at how God has come and taken on flesh, we know that this physical world is good. When God created the world, he made it good. He said it was good. And this is another aspect too of, the, um, of John saying that Christ is the logos the one who took on flesh, that, that was a radical idea because Greek philosophers never would have thought that the Logos was this physical thing, but, this phys, but the Logos was this impersonal force that stood outside of the physical world. And this was a scandalous idea to say that, that the Logos was a, was, came and assumed flesh, right? But I say this to say that the material world, the physical world is not in and of itself bad, but when you begin to seek meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in the material world, that's idolatry. And those, those things were created, the physical world was never created to fulfill our every longing. This Christmas season, this, you know, it's already begun, right? It, it began at Black Friday. You know, we spend a whole day celebrating how thankful we are for everything that we have and then the very next day, we don't have enough, so we're going to act like crazy people to go and, like I said, act like crazy people to take advantage of all of those um, great deals. And now we can't even wait till 12 a.m. It has to be 6 p.m. on Thursday, right? So we see this. We see this at Black Friday. We see this in all the commercials, um, all of the ads online, all the pop-ups. There's nothing in and of themselves wrong with there's nothing wrong with those commercials necessarily, right? But they can, t but they can 
begin to tempt us to think that we're, we will only be fulfilled and satisfied in this life if we have that next thing, that next car, that next diamond earring or whatever it may be. Those things were never meant to fulfill us. We are fulfilled much more in relationships with human beings than material things. And even non-Christians, even non-Christians can have recognized this. I don't know if any of you are a fan of those Hallmark movies. You know, this year, I think there's a record-setting number of Hallmark Christmas movies. And of course, because they're Christmas movies, there are going to be some Christian themes in those movies, and they're good. I've got no problem with them. It's been a while... It's been a while since I've seen them, but I've seen a few in my day. And oftentimes, some of those, the, the theme in those movies, usually, well, usually there's, there might be a person in that movie who is kind of the Scrooge-like character, who cares more about his wealth, and as the, as the Christmas season rolls around, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to live generously, right? He doesn't like the Christmas season, um, by the end of the movie, you know, hopefully his heart has been softened and so now he's more generous and he's more about relationships. He understands that he will find more fulfillment in relationships, whether that's with a romantic um, person or um, the warmth of family, the relationships that he has with family. He finds those things more fulfilling. And a lot of those movies too on Hallmark are, are romantic movies and we, they can lead us to believe that ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in this life is found in those romantic relationships. And it is true that we find more fulfillment in those relationships than we do in material things. But even still, no human relationship was created to fulfill our every longing, to give us ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. My, the, my relationship with my best friend cannot fulfill me like my relationship with Christ. My relationship with my wife cannot fulfill me the way that my relationship with Christ can, nor can I fulfill her, no matter how much I love her and she loves me, cannot fulfill us. They weren't created to. But as we do find some level of fulfillment in those things, it makes sense that if we find more fulfillment in relationships, we will find ultimate, ultimate fulfillment in the relationship with the highest person, which is Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction will be found in Jesus Christ. We must look to Christ to satisfy us, to fulfill our every longing. I'm running out of time. Craig already gave me the five minutes. I'm going way out of time. I apologize. I'll try to hurry this up. But this Christmas, and all of life too, right? The whole Christmas season is not found in Scripture, but we take advantage of the Christmas season to celebrate Christ. We want to make sure that as we go throughout our lives, that we continue to look to Christ for, for life, for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for sustenance. And if we want to look to Christ to satisfy us, we must denounce finding satisfaction in any other created, in anything that is created, right? Ultimate satisfaction will only be found in the uncreated one, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate source of fulfillment. And this is how he created us. He, he created us and wired us to only find fulfillment in him. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who noted, oh, every longing that we have, there is a fulfillment of. If I, if I am hungry for food, there, if I eat food, that will fulfill my hunger. And other 
or my, my desire to drink, my, need, my thirst, right? There is a, God has provided a means to quench that thirst, to fulfill that thirst. Just as we has, have an ultimate, we have a desire for ultimate satisfaction, longing. God has given that to us in Christ, the ultimate source of fulfillment. So this Christmas season, we must denounce finding ultimate satisfaction in anything else and look to Christ. And again, this is going to look like looking to Christ for sustenance. For sustenance. If we, if we want to find satisfaction in Christ alone, of course it begins by repentance and belief in him that he can satisfy us. There are ways that we can actively pursue that, actively pursue Christ in God's word to know him, to, save, to see and to savor his glory, his goodness, his love for us, right? Perhaps there are active, there, there are active steps that you can take this Christmas season to, to, um, to defend yourself from the temptations that come. Perhaps at Christmas season, you need to be intentional about the time you spend with your kids around the, the dinner table with your spouse or with your friends to, to spend more time talking about the ultimate gift, Jesus Christ, than, than the other things, the other gifts that we, find, that we, that we celebrate at Christmas time. Right? We can spend so much time emphasizing the gifts under the tree rather than the ultimate gift, which was Christ who came to die upon a tree. That's the ultimate gift. And we want to spend more time celebrating that. That, that he, he, he should be the ultimate source of our celebration this year, the ultimate um, object of our celebration this year, okay? We need to pursue satisfaction in Christ alone. The reason why he can satisfy our every longing is because he is the eternal God, the one who has created all things. He has designed us a certain way. He knows what is going to satisfy our every longing. He knows it is him and he gave himself freely to us to do this. As we, as we close today, why is Jesus the only one who can sustain and satisfy us? It is because he is the eternal God. If he was just a man, he would not be worthy of our worship. He would not be worthy of our um, belief to save us. If Jesus, is not, if Jesus is not God, our whole understanding of salvation falls apart as my paper falls. Um, if, Jesus, if Jesus was not God, then Jesus, then Jesus could not save us. Because the word came and took on flesh, he was able to save us and to bring us actual life. When Jesus came, he came to die on the cross for us. We can never separate the beauty of Christmas, the, the celebration of Christ coming from why he came and he came to save us. We can't separate the cradle from the cross. When we look at the cross, we see a sacrifice of infinite worth, Jesus Christ die in the place of sinners. Because Jesus is man, he was able to stand in our place and to die the death that you and I deserve. Because Jesus is the eternal God, he was able to die a sacrificial death of infinite worth to cover an infinite amount of sins. If we don't believe and affirm that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the uncreated one, our understanding of salvation falls apart. We don't worship him the way that we should. We don't understand the life that we have that we can have in Christ. This Christmas, this season, 
and as we go throughout our lives, let's look to Christ to find life. Let's look to Christ to find satisfaction and meaning. It is all about him. It is all about Jesus, the eternal God, the one who desires to give us life. And this life we experience in the context of relationship with him because our God is a very relational God who loves us, who cares about us, who sent his son Jesus to come and save us. And John's invitation today, right? He gives these first five verses so that we might know who to believe in, know who to find life in. That's our invitation today, to come and to believe in Christ for life and to continue to look to him for, for sustenance, for satisfaction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who does indeed love us. God, you have created a good world. You have created man in your image. God, you have, you have created us for a purpose, and that is to know you. And when, God, our sinfulness all of us in this room are sinful people. And when that sin separated us from you, God, we thank you that you did not give up on your people. God, that you sent your son Jesus, the word made flesh, to come and to make a way for us, to deliver us from darkness, to give us life, life that is eternal. This morning, God, I pray that you would come, God, that you would redirect our gaze on Christ, that we would seek him as the source of our life, that we would seek him as the source of our satisfaction and our sustenance, God. Pray that we would look to you. I pray that we would reflect you in everything that we do. Lord, would you come and have your way among us this morning and this season? We pray that we would make it all about you, God. All about Jesus, the eternal God, the one who is worthy of all of our worship. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.